Hi there, listeners. In post-production for this episode, we noticed that the audio quality was unusually poor, especially on JP's audio. We think what he said is worth hearing, so we did our best to make it easier to listen to. We fixed things on the technical side, and we appreciate your patience through the glitches. Now on to episode number 23 of Thinking Christianly. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Most of us know Dallas Willard as a brilliant and pastoral writer on spiritual formation. In his writing, you can sense a man of great thought, but the depth of his knowledge can be hidden from the reader of his most popular works. And I wanted to take a little time to explore the scholarly side of Dr. Willard. So Stan, I'd like to ask that you open us up and give us a bit of a summary of Dr. Willard's work as a Christian author and academic philosopher. I'm happy to, uh, JP. I'm sure you can fill a lot in, but uh, I'll do a general overview. Uh, He was born in 1935 and just went to be with the Lord in 2013. And uh, as you said, most folks listening to this probably know him through his speaking and writing on issues in Christian maturity. So uh, let me start there, say a little bit about that, and then connect that to his academic vocation as a philosopher. He really became well-known among Christians due to his teaching on how to to be an apprentice of Christ, as he would say, being with Jesus and learning to be like him. So he wrote in a number of books on that theme. It really had a major impact on many individuals, and I think on the direction and the conversation of the the broader, at least Western church. Some of the more influential books are The Spirit of the Disciplines, Understanding How God Changes Lives. And uh, I really liked how he not only talked about what the disciplines are, which Richard Foster had done a little bit earlier, but also why they're effective and drawing into his philosophical training to unpack how our souls and bodies are so deeply united, what we do in our bodies in terms of disciplines affect our soul. Probably his most influential book was The Divine Conspiracy, Rediscovering Our Hidden Life in God, which was Christianity Today's Book of the Year, 1999. Uh, He also wrote Hearing God, Developing a Conversational Relationship with God, which has been really helpful to me to try to understand how better we actually hear God's voice. And then uh, lastly, he wrote Renovation of the Heart, Putting on the Character of Christ, which again was a Christianity Today's Book of the Ward winner uh, when it came out. And and though he was always passionate about helping Christians understand and live according to God's design and the things he was writing about uh, in these books, and actually had become an ordained minister initially, he ultimately chose to have a ministry via the academic route. He'd always loved ideas from the earliest days. He studied philosophy as an undergrad at Baylor University. But he's trying to decide, do I go and actually spend a life in the university context or in the church? And he has a sense of God speaking to him. And I'm going to quote something on his website. He heard God saying, if you stay in the churches, the university will be closed to you. But if you stay in the university, the churches will be open to you. And that really set a trajectory to influence the next generation by teaching and writing about what's true for those inside and outside the Christian faith as a a university professor. So he went on, earned his PhD at the University of Wisconsin, taught there for five years, invited to join the faculty at the University of Southern California, and spent the next 48 years at USC. 
really became an outstanding professor there, a lot of honors, excellence in teaching award, outstanding faculty of the year. In fact, upon his retirement, the director of the philosophy department at that time said, Dallas was one of the most popular, versatile, and dedicated teachers the School of Philosophy has ever known. Wow. Then in addition to his influence for Christ as a professor, he wrote many books and articles that continue to this day and will for many, many years influence others. His areas of interest really were areas that had a deep connection to the biblical understanding of reality. He wrote in Metaphysics, What's Ultimately Real and Why It Matters, which really has helped shape I know JP's thinking and certainly my my thinking as well, and we did this podcast on that a little while ago. Uh, he worked in epistemology, area of what we can know, including that we can know truths about God, not just have a blind faith. And we did a podcast a while ago on that as well, that Christianity is a knowledge tradition. We can be right or wrong about these truth claims that are made in Scripture and have knowledge of these things. He worked in philosophy of mind, that we're not just material beings, but have a an immaterial dimension, a soul. And uh, of course, we've talked about that in this podcast a number of times, and JP and I both work in different ways on trying to articulate that idea in other contexts. He worked in logic, because if people don't understand how to think correctly, they can't come to know what's true. And uh, as we've just been talking about in the last two podcasts, he worked on phenomenology and really helping the ideas of Edmund Husserl be more widely known, because... Uh, there there are ways to know beyond the third-person scientific approach, and it's, it's valuable in so many ways, and Husserl had identified that, so he went on to do a lot of work to unpack those thoughts. An important work on that is his Logic and the Objectivity of Knowledge, a study in Husserl's philosophy. And then lastly, he uh, did a lot of work in philosophy of religion, just to tie all that together. And in fact, a lot of this has connections to that, how we understand theological truths uh, through philosophical distinctions and analysis. So just a wide range of issues he addressed, but they all tied together in helping one understand better what's real and how do we live in light of that. So that's his academic side. I mean, there's there's the personal side as well. He was a true Christian scholar who loved God, loved others, loved the life of the mind. In fact, one of the uh, people at his retirement, the director of the USC Office of Religious Life said, Dallas, quote, was the ultimate scholar practitioner. He bridged the divide between philosophy and theology and showed us all how to bring together our spiritual and our scholarly lives in a meaningful way. So actually, uh, he's a model for what I do in my ministry with Global Scholars to seek to have hundreds and thousands of Christian scholars around the world like Dallas who love God with heart and mind and really influence their universities, their colleagues, their students, and their disciplines out of that deep sense of calling to the academy. That's a summary. There's so much more that could be said, but JP, uh, I'd love to have you add anything. You studied directly with him. Of course, I didn't. So you know him better than I do and probably better than most anyone else does. So your thoughts? Well, I couldn't have summarized it better, Stan. I think you said it uh, so well, but I would like to perhaps emphasize one thing about Dallas that was implicit in what you said. He believed that in order to do ethics properly, and in order to deal with uh, philosophy of religion properly, you had to become knowledgeable about metaphysics and epistemology. Those were, and, and logic would be included in there, but metaphysics, uh, if, if, if that is set aside, 
then what happens is that your ethical assumptions are no longer tethered to reality. They're, they're free-floating. They, they can be expressions of feeling or uh, just uh, mere assertions. But, but Dallas believed that moral valuations were rooted in the nature of reality itself, that values were real, uh, th that when they constituted your character, there was something real about you that had developed, that we had a nature and we could live according to that nature or contrary to it, and so on. So metaphysics was important to him. But epistemology uh, was important as well because he, he took these things to be, as you pointed out, items of knowledge and, and that, that there are certain moral truths that everyone knows are, are true. You know, torturing little babies for fun of it is, is just wrong, period. Kindness is a virtue and it's not a vice. Now, it can become a vice if you're, if you're kind when you, when, when you ought to confront something, but kindness is itself a, a virtue and so on. Now, the reason this is so important today is that, as you said, there is this attitude that reality is, by and large, just the physical world. And if you want to believe in something more than the physical world, you can believe it if you'd like, but there's no reason one way or the other to believe that. But you're free to choose to believe it if you want to. Mm -hmm. And now there's also the idea that moral claims are social constructions. That is, they don't reflect reality. They're things a group of people create for their group. And so moral knowledge is just out of the question. If you start telling people, I disagree with you, I think, I think that that's wrong, you're legislating morality uh, because you don't have any good reason for why you're claiming that. And so he was smart enough to know that doing a little work in these two fields was essential for creating a way to think about ethics and also to clear a way for the receptivity of the gospel, mm. uh, that they were very, very important. So well said. Mm-hmm. I'd like to explore Dallas's scholarly work a little bit more by connecting the podcast that we have just released on Husserl. I kind of bridge the gap here. So it gets really complicated because many of the ideas that Dr. Willard worked with from Husserl are extremely complex and would require quite detailed explanations. Um, thankfully, Dr. Willard gave us those explanations, and you can find them in articles, books, talks that he gave over the decades of his work as a scholar and philosopher. I'll highlight just a few here to give the listeners a taste of what his work was kind of like. If you've read his books, you've gotten a little bit, but I, I want to kind of give you the shape of his work and just how important it really was. He translated early writings in the philosophy of logic and mathematics, and we talked a bit about what an important work that was in a previous episode, but I want to just dive into what an effort that was. Let's just kind of put it into the context of history. So he was writing in close collaboration with the Husserl Archive in Louvain, and if you remember how those works got there, you know, a monk named Father 
Leo von Breda in some very large suitcases on a train, diplomatic pouches coming within a hair's breadth of complete destruction during air raids. You have all of that. So those texts are the ones that Dr. Willard was translating. And even when they were safe and available for study, the majority were still in very difficult to translate shorthand. And so once the shorthand was translated into German, things were still incredibly complex and required a staggering intelligence to understand and translate. One of the reviewers said this, Dallas Willard's choice of terms to translate some of the notoriously ambiguous terminology of the late 19th century is excellent. And his translation does justice to the clear, readable style of which the texts were written in the time of Husserl's life. So not only did Dr. Willard have to translate the shorthand into German and then the German into English, he also had to translate the thoughts and to follow the threads of Husserl's thought in order to come up with something that would be complete and incredibly difficult work. It's a very interesting picture to see this faithful Christian man who lived out what he believed in such incredible clarity. When you're reading popular Christian works, they don't tend to come with that kind of philosophical foundation, which is one reason why he's had such an incredible impact and such an incredible legacy. I wanted to ask both of you, and particularly you, JP, you are stewards of the legacy of Dr. Dallas Willard. And I wanted to know how you see yourself in that role. Well, I, first of all, can't even imagine myself being in the same sentence with him. Stewarding him is, is <laughs> it's kind of a staggering idea. So the way I see myself is that I began to see the reasonableness of a whole way of thinking and a whole set of ideas. And I I prefer the word ideas to information because information sounds like the phone book, you know, or just a little isolated bits of things that you've got on your shopping cart. Ideas has a gravitas to it. I learned a set of ideas that came from everywhere. I mean, Dallas wasn't just a Husserlian. He he was deeply familiar with Aristotle and Aquinas and Plato, Leibniz, and a whole range of contemporary thinkers that he read. Before he died, and he knew that he did not have much longer to live, I got a phone call from his wife, Jane, and Jane said, J.P. Dallas asked me to call you. He would like to see you here at the house uh, as soon as you could come and see him. And so I, I dropped everything and I, I went and I saw him. He was uh, in his nightgown clothes and had a catheter in. And he, he was, uh, it was, he was obvious that he was sick and he wanted just to connect with me one more time. And he said, I am well, among the things he said was that I am concerned about four fundamental things. The first one is metaphysical realism, and that is the idea that there really is a real world out there that is totally independent of the way I speak about it or think about it or how I look at it or what I believe. Mm-hmm. It, it is what it is, irrespective of me. And uh, epistemic realism 
was number two, which is basically the idea that through my noetic equipment, I'm capable of having direct contact with the external world. So I don't look at an apple and infer from some premise that it ha- it's colored red. I am directly aware of the surface of the apple. So those were two things. And then there were a couple of things about the spiritual formation movement. He said that if these were not cared for, the spiritual formation movement would become trivial and shallow and it would lose its way. Uh, he feared that it would start merging with Buddhism. Mm. And one of them was that there needed to be theoretical models of the human person that were developed with philosophy and theology as foundational, but taking insights from psychology or education or neuroscience as they fit in from wherever it came and developing a model of the human person such that different understandings of spiritual formation made sense given our model of what we are. Mm. It was crucial for him that we developed increasingly sophisticated models. For example, I think Stan is going to be working on a book about uh, some uh, well-intentioned brothers and sisters who are beginning to kind of reduce the spiritual life to uh, different things that are going on in the brain. And this is very, very sad. That is a very inadequate model of a human person that makes sense out of spiritual formation. But Dallas would say that, of course, we need to allow room for research and brain studies to help us, but that's not the fundamental way of going about it. Those are supplementary. Hmm. So that he wanted to develop that kind of model. And then finally, he believed it was absolutely crucial that we make our spiritual formative theories empirically testable Uh, in some way or another. His concern was that spiritual formation was considered to be a private religious thing, Mm. whereas psychology is considered to be publicly verifiable knowledge. And he wanted to place spiritual formation so that it could be taught in the universities as a science of human development. Now, what I consider myself as doing this is taking those four elements and others that I've, I'm concerned about and lecturing on, teaching, and writing about those things in order to continue that set of ideas to be developed further and further and to flourish. And so that's the way I see my calling. What I would like our audience to think about is what kind of a person would do what he did like you Jordan mentioned who spent hundreds thousands of hours alone in his study translating Husserl's works pouring over Aristotle and all the while you know we need help with our small groups in the church hmm. and our worship music needs to improve and uh you know we need to you, you know we need to take insights from uh church growth to make people more comfortable in the church and all that. Well, Dallas didn't have a lot of patience for that kind of church growth stuff. But the point is that he understood that what he was doing was a a central way of fleshing out discipleship unto a rational, loving God. Jordan, he saw things that were coming in culture. He was a master at 
observing a flow of ideas. And he knew what was going to happen if the church did not find ways to resist the encroachment of scientific naturalism on the one hand and just postmodern constructivism on the other. And I call our audience to follow Dallas and those and those of us who are about the same thing at your own station in life. We're not all going to be top scholars, but we can all get a little bit better, can't we? Mm-hmm. At learning to think philosophically for the kingdom of God, given that we have families and a job and all the rest of us, we don't compare ourselves with others, but we could all do better. And that's what I'm taking away from this conversation about uh, Dallas Willard. Mm. Stan, what would you like to add? Well, if I had one takeaway to to add, it would be, and it's implicit again in what JP is saying, but just the importance of being true to what God's called you to do, even though it's hard or it's a, a long-term project. Uh, it requires you to do things that don't seem to be that relevant in the immediate context. It was like the discussion we had, I think, last time about laying the foundation of the cathedral that you'll never see completed. You know, so much of of his work was, as JP mentioned, pouring over in the privacy of his study, these texts that were very hard to understand and just took amazing amounts of of effort to discern and then translate and then to uh, comment on. But he had a sense God was calling him to do that. And just to be faithful to do what God called him to do without the accolades of everybody saying, this is so important. Yes, we're so glad you're doing it. Realizing that, no, this is important in the long run, even if it doesn't have the immediate benefits. That That's always an encouragement to me when I see people willing to do that, because so much of what we hear is that it's only important if we get from this thing we're working on some type of quote unquote immediate gratification you know, our uh, Facebook likes soar, or we sell a ton of copies of this book, or we get asked to speak a bunch of places or whatever our our area is. And, you know, Dallas just modeled that, you know, that's that's not how calling works. Calling works like just being faithful and doing your best and letting letting the Lord take it and do with it what he will. And I I need those kind of models in my life. Mm -hmm. You bet. You bet. And I think about how the profundity of his message would have been so greatly reduced if he were not living the life he was describing. That's exactly right. Yes. We will return to the show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. 
visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to Thinking Christianly. Another thing I'm struck by in in both of your comments is that, and I think this is a, a fact personally, but great philosophy tends to be prophetic. Hmm. It tends to see what is so clearly or more clearly maybe than we can see it. And then you can see what will be with a firmer grasp, maybe than an untrained eye. Hmm. And I, having a little bit of my world being in this, you know, Christian formation, spiritual formation. Yeah, he's absolutely right. These are the dangers and trying to keep a movement from kind of running off a cliff it's very challenging and to be aware of them a decade before they really became an issue that people were even considering it's just incredible well it is i remember reading something that he he was warning against the use of spiritual formation as a kind of theological technology mm. where you know you put this in you get this out that was divorced from any sort of relationship or spiritual influence and wow, that is so true. Oh, it is. At least in my life, I have realized there's no hack. Yeah. It's a long game. You know, you can find things that make it more make it more useful to you. For instance, I enjoy hearing the scriptures rather than reading them. I remember better when I hear. That's not the case for everyone. I slow down better when I hear. And so when I am taking time to study the scripture, I often listen to it first. And that would be something that Dr. Willard would say, well, yeah, that works for you. And you have to try a few things before you figure out what it is that is going to be the thing that helps you get into the scriptures. And here are a bunch of ways to try it. It's just, it's so freeing. Well, and he talked a lot about experimenting in the Christian life, try different things. And he said, this is a a lifelong experiment in the sense that we're continuing to grow and we should always try and use things that are not, of course, morally or doctrinally uh, mm-hmm. helpful. Give it a try. That raises a question for me. I'd like to ask you about, uh, I so appreciate how Dallas was willing to look outside of the, for him, his his Baptist roots and the practices that I'm sure he grew up doing. And, you know, any tradition tends to have this idea that, yeah, the things that we do are the, the things you do. I grew up in a tradition that was was the daily quiet time. And that was really the extent of spiritual formation. But Dallas did so much to expand my horizons, I know, and so many others, because he he drew on so many different Christian traditions historically uh, who have thought in so many different ways about what it looks like to, to actually develop Christ-likeness through different practices and even use the word spiritual disciplines when that was not popular at all. I think it's more popular now. So my question is, do you remember conversations with him about struggles he might've had in doing that or lessons that we might learn as he saw a way that the church could grow? And even though it wasn't popular at that time to talk about these things, he just had a sense of it needs to be talked more about and pressed into these issues. Well, yes. In fact, I remember a statement he made and it was kind of an interesting one, but he had been preaching uh, for a while in a, in a little Baptist church. And he said, after a while, uh, uh, you know, months and months of doing that and ministering, it, it, it dawned on him that in, in his church and in the church today, 
We're trying to figure out ways to get people to come. And what Jesus was trying to do is to keep people away from him uh, because (laughs) there were crowds that that, that he couldn't get away from people. Now, he said that there must be something we're doing wrong. And, And so he realized that the way we conceive of growth and the way we uh, conceive of church is deeply flawed and broken. And that led him to say that you would be terribly mistaken if you took the achievements of Christian growth in the United States as the best we can hope for in this life. Uh, no, he said there there is much more that we can achieve, but you have to look elsewhere. Uh, and that was both in other parts of the world, but also other traditions and other periods of time. So this this uh, experimentation and willingness to look around came from his own desperation to not settle for a sort of a dying Christian life, but but instead to want to grow as as best he possibly could, and uh, that led him to look around and do some research and read about it and try to find out what's wrong. What, where are we missing it? And he began then to get insights and practice them and write about them and rest is history. But it was born out of a desire to face reality, to face himself uh, and to say, am I growing the way you would think I would be if there really were a God that is like the Bible describes him? And he had to say no, and uh, he didn't like that. (laughs) Hmm. And so many of us are willing to settle for, are we acceptable and respected by the people in my local church or that I've been going to for for decades or what have you? And and we all want that, but, but, but we need to raise our sights a little bit more. And that's why role models... And reading stories about uh, great, great saints and heroes in the faith that were ordinary people, but tried various things and really, really grew, are are good for us. Uh, They encourage us. That's what I learned from him most. Mm. Didn't want to be satisfied with uh, uh, churchianity, I guess you might want to say. Wow, what a great word, churchianity. Yeah. I'll give you a quick example that this just broke my heart. This fall, I've been a Christian 55 years, and I have devoted, gosh, at least 53 of those to helping push back on unbelievers who are trying to embarrass Christians and mock and ridicule and to push back on that, but also to give my brothers and sisters courage and, and, and conviction and confidence in what that what they believe is not something that that you're silly this is this is the most sensible thing around and and i i and stan and you jordan and others have worked on this what has really saddened me is there's a pretty good amount of evidence that we haven't made all that much progress what i'm seeing is a division among a group of people that would watch a podcast like this and they're getting it 
And there are apologetic ministries. There are things like global scholars. You know, what, what in the world are you doing that for? Because you know that you need to have professors that are Christian that are influencing the culture from top down. And I could go on and on. But then the church organizations that just don't get it. They still don't get it. This, this happened East, right around the time of Easter. There is a dear brother in our church, and I and I say that with oh I I love this gentleman and he, and he's you know I'd say he's approaching he's seventy ish something like that, and he's walked with the Lord uh, for decades and decades and he's been a faithful participant in our church for thirty years and others before our church was formed, and so he was uh, he is a deacon and, and helps with those kinds of things. And, but before the service comes up, he helps people and chats with them. And, and, and he came by and I said, I said, say, Hey brother, um, tell me if, if somebody asked you, can you give me one reason, just one, why you think it makes sense to believe the resurrection really happened? And now listen to this. He said, well, to be honest with you, I never thought about it. What? A gentleman who's been in a good church for 40 years, who, who loves the Lord, it never dawned on him to ask the question about the most fundamental doctrine of the Christian religion. I almost wept. I just said, what in the world? This is so far gone that it seems almost impossible that this will ever turn around in, in, in American culture. Now, I'm going to keep trying, uh, you know, but but. I have to tell you that that is disheartening. Mm -hmm. And people who are listening to this podcast, you have the privilege and the invitation to be a part of of helping to up people's games uh, in, the, in cultivating a Christian mind. And that's why we, quote, waste time talking about people like Edmund Husserl or Dallas Willard, because we need to hear about their lives. Mm -hmm. You know, JP, I've had those same experiences and it is discouraging and I don't honestly know what to do with it. I just had an experience uh, not long ago, uh, a church I was attending, I offered to teach an introduction to apologetics class for their high school students and, uh, you know, said, you structure it any way you want, as long as you want, I'll do a one week thing, I'll do a semester, whatever, uh, whatever topics you think are helpful. But I, you know, I'd like to offer to, to do that. And uh, there was just radio silence no interest and uh, actually they did start a class for high school kids uh, and it was on learning hebrew what so uh you could study the old testament better that's just unbelievable and i thought you know what it's yeah hebrew is a great thing to study but i think you ought to know that the biblical record is true which a lot of these students were questioning of course before offering them a course in introductory hebrew and you know it's just a, a recent example of something i have run into just for decades and i honestly don't I know the Lord's called us to continue to, and this goes back to where D Dallas has, has well illustrated how you do this, to continue to seek to encourage others to think well about their faith. But it's a little bit discouraging, honestly, yeah. uh, in terms of well, what does that actually look like in the North American church? I now, I see it in, in the global church in, in really exciting ways. Yes. But uh, sometimes in the North American church, not so much. I agree with you, Stan. And I do have to draw strength from less visible, but growing number of people out there. They watch this and then they're reading good Christian books about various issues that they want to know what to say about. 
So there's an audience out there, and it's a lot bigger than it was 30, 40 years ago. It's not having the impact in leavening the lump of the church as much as I'd like to see. Far from it. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, at least that's hopeful. You know, our calling is to primarily encourage them, equip them, do what we can to help them be better at what they're doing and cheer them on. And I think that's what we're doing besides you uh, trying to place people in strategic locations, which is crucial. And I'm trying to prepare people to go on and do what you're doing, you know, uh, to multiply our effects somehow. But I'm not going to lie and deny that I don't get discouraged by this. I thought that by now we would see things that would be quite a bit different. You know, I have noticed that there are certainly less, but those people are significantly more dedicated. Yes. And that gives me a bit of hope that the people who are going out and finding that information or finding those ideas, as you um, said better earlier, those people, they're on a journey and they understand that there is a thread pulling them through these things, through this knowledge, through the different ideas. And hopefully with each new idea that they wrestle with, they get a little bit closer to being like Christ and to knowing him better and to applying these ideas to their to their world and to their life. And And if you do that a few times, you start to notice the way that it shapes you. So when I see when I see people who are going after these resources, they're not just going after one particular resource. They are scavenging. Yes. And in some ways they kind of have to because a lot of what we're putting out as Christians is kind of subpar. And so they're going out and they're scavenging. Dr. Willer talked about spiritual formation being a lot like human development and the parallels there and one of the things that's really interesting about children is that they will make the things they need. So if you've ever seen a video of kids who are in sub-Saharan Africa or in other parts of the world that are impoverished, you will see kids playing with balls that are made from mud and plastic bags and all sorts of really interesting things that they found, but they found a way to make a ball. <laughs> Would it be helpful to hand them an inflated soccer ball? Yeah, it would. It's a little bit like that with Christian formation. You know, when people are deprived of really good spiritual formation tools, they have to go out and scavenge. They have to find a way to make what they need. And it takes an enormous amount of energy rather than the church being what the church should be and handing them a ball. Yes. Yeah. This is what you need for your muscles to grow. We're in a season right now where people are just having to come up with their own stuff. Okay. Go down history of Celtic thought and you're having to pull from there and you're, you know, thinking about the monastics and having to pull from there too. And it's not unified in a way that says, this is the rich history of the Christian life. Here's your ball. I think that is the great failure of modern Christianity, especially North American Christianity, is we haven't managed to pass it on. We haven't managed to give people something more than information and social club-like status. And it's it's devastating. It's sad because it's not what it's supposed to be. Well said. Ellen, to bring that full circle to the life and legacy of Dallas Willard, 
that's why I have so enjoyed his writings. Uh, I, I've so enjoyed the few times I've gotten to be with him. JP, one time when I was taking the MA with you out there at Talbot, uh, you probably don't remember this, but you took me down there when you were heading down to get an afternoon with Dallas to talk about an issue you were working on and wanted his input. And uh, I tagged along, fly on the wall, and just, just being around him helped me start to think outside the quote-unquote box of my mm -hmm. very narrow evangelical Western Christian paradigms because Dallas was so in touch with the history of the church, the global realities of what it looks like to walk with Christ outside of just this milieu. It was just very encouraging for me in these ways just to realize, yeah, there are other ways to think about these things that are actually in some ways more helpful, even though they're often either written off or just ignored by our contemporary culture, evangelical culture. Amen. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. I really appreciate your insights. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? Well, I think we've wrapped it up and uh, done, a, done a pretty good job of expressing our concerns here and uh, talking about Dallas's uh, role. I've, I've really enjoyed this time. I have too. Yeah, same here. Same here. There is hope for the church because Christ is our king. We don't lose hope. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's his church. Yep. Amen. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org podcasts, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plink, encouraging you to think Christianly.